welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard Industry Updates for the Modern Dairy Family. I'm Darby Toth, a Technical Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, your North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep with Western United Dairies. Hey Darby, we're back in action for this week. We're going to be out again next week, but we're we're working through the summer schedule and I'm sure everyone is hopefully having a little bit of grace for us because everybody knows how it is in the summertime, but good to see you over Zoom, if not in person, almost in person. Over Zoom. Hopefully we'll see each other in person pretty soon. I feel like it's been long enough. Yes, absolutely. And some exciting stuff coming up with the Dairy Leaders Program. Um, Darby, do you want to give a quick um, update about some deadlines and some things that folks should keep in mind? Yeah, so... Dairy Leaders is going to run um, in two separate years this year. It'll be a 2021-22 session. Um, the applications are actually due on August 18th. So that deadline is quickly approaching. They're on our website and you can either call or email me too and I'll be um, happy to get them over to you. We're going to break this session up. Um, all of the big traveling is going to occur in the spring of 2022, in the early spring, but we will be having environmental sessions and communication sessions, most likely in Modesto in the fall into the early winter. We'll take a hiatus for the holidays and then we'll be back and hopefully around February we'll be traveling to Sacramento and then after that we will be traveling at this point, we're planning on traveling to Washington, D.C. and Chicago, and that's looking like it's going to be around the first week of April. So really great program. I encourage anyone who's interested or has questions to reach out. This is not just a right out of college program. Anybody that is interested um, can join. So I've had a couple members go, I don't want to be the old guy in the program. And I'm like, no, you're not. It's, it's for everybody. So we really hope we'll get some good participation and Melissa you and I have both been through it and it's a great program it totally is and I'm excited for the new class um again you know you can reach out to Darby if you have questions I'm happy to pass the application on to any of our members or help you work through it it's not too crazy but there are a couple little requirements so if you want to apply maybe don't open it up on August 17th but um yeah we're excited to to launch that and it's just another great way we're getting back into the hopefully almost normal swing of things here at WUD. So we're looking forward to that. Um, another exciting thing um, happening, Western United Dairymen as part of our partnerships throughout California and with the California Cattle Council is launching a new radio spot. So listen for that in the episode today. Uh, talks a little bit about drought and what dairies are doing to be water efficient. So it's, it's a really cool partnership and really cool opportunity for us. And gosh, Darby, without that, with all that, I guess we could jump right into the episode. We might as well. It's hot. Let's just get rolling. Yes. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. Hey folks, hope you had a great week. Uh, we had a lot of reports and events this week, a little bit to feed the bulls, a little bit to feed the bears. Uh, we started off with a global dairy trade event and expectations were that, um, indices could fall a bit. Um, they in fact dropped, uh, I think larger than most expectations. Um, a little bit of whole milk powder volume had been pulled from the auction, which was 
thought by some to be supportive, that did not play out. Powder prices um, fell pretty dramatically at this event. Uh, skim milk powder dropped 5% and whole milk powder down 35 That was um, quite a few consecutive global dairy trade events now that powder prices have lost uh, traction, um, albeit from a high level. Uh, then moving on to Thursday, we got a updated milk production report. As expected, it was another solid showing. U.S. output was up 2.9%. Uh, All major producing regions saw growth, um, even the Pacific Northwest that was hit by heat um, kind of late in June. Um, the cow numbers uh, were reported uh, came down for the first time in a while, down 1,000 head. Um, hinting at possibly kind of the, the herd peaking out. However, it's a little bit hard to understand whether that's a trend yet because they also revised maize cow numbers up 4,000 head. So really report to report, cow numbers were still up 3,000 head. And that puts us at uh, 153,000 cows above prior year levels. So we still have a very big herd um, and lots of uh, cow power, if you will. Um, kind of in the here and now, we are hearing that milk flows are declining seasonally. It's summer, it's hot in a lot of regions, um, but still pretty available, particularly um, in the Midwest. Also on Thursday, we got the cold storage report. Uh, mixed results out of here. For cheese, a little bit more bullish. Um, inventories fell at a faster than normal pace, down 23 million pounds compared to an average 6 million pound drop between the months. Um, even, so, even so, we're still higher than year ago levels, though, up uh, 1.3%. So still plenty in, in inventories. Um, moving over to butter, a little bit more bearish. We saw a big jump up in stocks, um, plus, um, uh, I'm sorry, what, plus 2.6 million pounds. Um, that exceeds the average 600,000 pound decrease we usually see between the two months. And we're up 14, uh, over 14% year over year. So as, uh, as it all washed out, uh, we ended up with cheese getting declining for most of the week, but we saw some recovery into Friday. Block settled at $1.5850, um, still down on the week though by three cents. Barrels lost three and three quarter cents for the week, $1.4025. Uh, butter uh, was the only one to gain up one and three quarters of a cent to $1.6950. And non-fat finished the week unchanged. Over in the grain markets, uh, we saw nearby corn and soybeans decline this week on disappointing export sales and a little bit more uh, rain in the forecast in some in some key areas. The corn conditions did not change per USDA, with 65% of the corn crop still in good or excellent condition. Have a fabulous week. With our state facing a record drought. California's dairy families are meeting the challenge of getting the most out of every drop of water. According to UC researchers, California's dairy families will use 25% less water this year than last year. Over the past two decades, 50% less. How'd we do it? Resilience, innovation, technology. In fact, when it comes to water conservation, California dairy families lead the world. We're using recycled water, ensuring sustainability, we're irrigating our farmland more efficiently, doing more with less. 
and nearly half of what we feed our animals comes from nutritious, natural crop byproducts, which require no additional water at all. Dairy families and the California Cattle Council are doing our part. We'll continue to feed California sustainably and using our water efficiently. All right, well, I'm here with West United Dairy CEO, Anya Radabaugh. Anya, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. So we're gonna talk a little bit about methane. One recently submitted comments to a working draft document that the California Air Resources Board put out, which clearly stated that the dairy sector was doing very well with its current methane reduction efforts, but not well enough. The most significant aspect of the report dairy farmers need to sit up and pay attention to is that CARB is attempting to include enteric emissions as part of the overall baseline goal the industry needs to hit as part of compliance with SB 1383, effectively doubling the overall goal from 40% reductions to 80%. What has been gearing up to fight CARB on their misinterpretation of SB 1383 for several years now, and Anya is here to discuss our offensive strategy to protect our farmers from further regulation. Thanks, Darby. We'll go through this step by step, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that as we fight ARB, um, we didn't just go with the mission to fight. We wanted to make sure we had a very tactical approach as, as to how we approach that fight and that we weren't just throwing our hands up in the air. But several years ago, ARB sat down with Paul and I and explicitly discussed the fact that they were intending on including enteric emissions, which for everyone's uh, reference are the emissions that come specifically from the rumen of the animal out the cow burps. So we're not uh, necessarily talking about manure here, although that will play a role. So when they mentioned that to us, uh, both Paul and I sat up on our chair and, and realized that we were in for a fight. ARB's interpretation as regulators, which is the opposite of keeping businesses in business, their mission is to regulate, is that the industry-wide goal is 40% reduction, despite the legislated objectives of touching 40% only on manure emissions. Um, Paul's uh, conversation with the podcast last week is really important. If you haven't heard that, I would hit pause and make sure you listen to last week's podcast episode where Paul discussed the negotiations that occurred from the dairy industry and the legislative uh, sector in 2016 on reducing and essentially coming to a compromise on 1383, which resulted in that 40% of manure ends uh, of the, the 2013 baseline. So as we heard this, we knew we were gonna have to fight. And so um, we were able to position ourselves very well within the legislature uh, through our um, political efforts, and we ensured that we had some interpretations from something called Ledge Council. There is a team of lawyers that sit in the basement of the Capitol. They often don't see very much sunlight. Some people suggest that they drink blood. But this legislative council team's job is to interpret the laws that our California Assembly and Senate write so that if there are new bills or coming bills, um, they can essentially advise on how things can be accomplished in law. So we asked Ledge Council uh, to interpret 
1383 and whether or not ARB had the authority to regulate interim emissions. This was in 2019, and the answer was resoundingly no. Now, alleged council opinions are confidential, and they are held only by the member of the Assembly or Senate that asks them, but we indicated to ARB that we had this opinion and that we would release it if we needed to. Keep in mind, when ARB wrote this report, they knew full well that they didn't have the authority, but again, they're going to test the limits of their statutory authority at any opportunity. We see this in all uh, regulatory approaches. So it's always up to the constituent base to make sure that we put those boundaries out there and protect our constituents. So we wanted to make sure, triple sure, even after that first interpretation of the Ledge Council, that enteric was not to be touched. So we actually went back and asked through both the Assembly and the Senate, there are two additional Ledge Council opinions that Western has in its possession that also verify the question. We wanted to see if there were certain metrics that 1383 laid out around enteric, which includes whether or not the technology is viable, whether or not it hurts the animal, whether or not it's essentially approved by consumers, when and how were those things supposed to be achieved before ARB could touch enteric, or is it all tangential and kind of rolled into one? And the, the opinion, again, came back resoundingly in dairy farmers' favor, which is that until the technology is much more you know, formal and much further along with consumer acceptance and animal health and welfare, they cannot even touch enteric emissions as part of the portfolio. So that was one huge pillar that Western utilized its political positioning to achieve. Because again, only members of the legislature, when asked, and they have to like you, uh, are able to get those ledge council opinions. The second pillar that we took out and made sure that was part of our tactical approach to fighting ARB was we wanted to know what the public interpretation of SB 1383 was. And so we set out with the California Cattlemen's Association on a massive project to poll voters, not just Newsom's voters, voters across the state, to find out what they thought of our efforts around methane and where they wanted to see the state go. And resoundingly, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask, I think this is so fascinating because when you look at the end product, obviously we're selling to consumers and um, sustainability, et cetera, have been such a buzzword. So I know I was really excited to see the results of these points and of these polls. The opinions came back and they are more fascinating than I think I could capture. And if any of our members want to see access to the raw data or the summary of the poll, we are going to start publishing that over the next few weeks. But 59% of California voters, and these are people that vote, believe that beef and dairy production in California has a positive impact on the state. And when we polled those voters to find out if they had an opinion on whether or not the state's farms are family owned, that approval number grew to 72% positivity when we told them that over 95% of our dairies are family owned. So we really tried to tie in common methodologies and themes around sustainability because oftentimes the industry and people that market our milk get kind of caught up in what they think the public will hear. But the public, in this case, voters who put people in power in Sacramento, are also our consumers. 
And so the respondents in these surveys were particularly important on the political side because we know that if changes in the law are going to happen, someone's going to have to convince those politicians one way or the other. But overall, the, the message that came back when we dug into the issue of enteric, which by the way, enteric is a word that uh, I would suggest is very insightful. Um, people, particularly voters, know nothing about ruminant biology and that's okay. I just want them to consume as many dairy products as possible and love it. Um, but they were broadly opposed to regulation of methane in general, specifically when we started to talk about regulating individual digestive processes of cows. So we were able to change enteric out for different words like digestive processes, direct cow um, regulation was often associated with, you know, quite a bit of opposition because people overwhelmingly indicated that they did not want to see businesses leaving the state of California. And on the side of that, they also said that what the dairy industry has been required to do under 1383 on the manure side is enough. And even handed messaging and the exposure there, 51% of those polled oppose any additional AR, uh, car regulations for cows. And 38% on top of that opposed direct regulation of enteric. And so this is something that really helps Western position ourselves in this argument with ARB. We want to make sure that as we talk about the polling and talking about the data, that we're not presenting in a situation where we are opposed to progress. It's quite the opposite. But what we wanted to ensure is that we had enough leverage to position our farmers in a way to cut if there is another deal, better deal, and also position farmers in general to have a best, better messaging trade-off. And so the polling is fascinating. Overwhelmingly, livestock emissions are not seen as a high priority by California voters. And that is a little bit shocking. Considering where we sit, it tends to be a huge focus of what we do. But Californians, by 72%, believe that the government needs to reduce the number of wildfires and their severity. Second place was promoting a transition to clean electricity like solar and wind. Third place happens to be reduction in emissions for California oil and natural gas production. Reducing emissions from the state ag and livestock industries almost didn't even meet a metric. It polled at a dismal 9% of people that wanted to see things change. So these are, this is really positive news for California farmers, particularly dairy and livestock farmers. Wanted to make sure we had that in our back pocket as we go to ARB because polling voters, ARB doesn't give two apps about what voters say. And I think that we, we need to make sure we point that out. But who would give a crap about what voters say? <laughs> well, the governor. The governor cares a lot at the moment and particularly a lot about what voters have to say. So now we rely on the third pillar of our tactical approach to fight ARB and their overreach on 1383. The political positioning of what with this governor is advantageous to have this conversation. The governor is in a situation where he would like to tell a good story on climate change and not a bad one. We now have the public policy 
and the legal interpretation to back him up in making those decisions. So those are, those are our three pillars of uh, tactical approach to fighting this. And I'm looking forward to winning. I think it's important that our members know ARB is the largest um, of the regulators. It's not going to be an easy fight to take on. But going to our producers in 2016 and telling them that we had a deal on methane, we're only as good to our producers as if we hold the line on that deal. A deal is a deal and we're not willing to move the goalposts. So 40% of action we are well within achieving in the next few years and ensuring that ARB is not allowed to overreach, particularly when it comes to regulating individual dairies for feeding uh, additives is a huge goal that Western's board has set out to achieve. As we wrap up this conversation, would you mind touching back and talking about who did the polling and what type of polling it was maybe for some of our members who are a little more interested in that? Yeah, it's a great question. We knew that we wouldn't have a leg to stand on if we hired just any old pollster. And frankly, if we poll people in the Valley, um, sadly, we have to make sure that what we're looking at is a broader swath of subject matter on the voting side. So we hired a gentleman named David Binder, who is the leading Democratic pollster in Sacramento. He is Governor Newsom's pollster. And we had him draft up a series of questions, uh, working with him very closely. Again, this was California Cattlemen's and Western United Dairies, working with him very closely to make sure that we craft the questions in a way that went through lots and lots of washing. And we wanted to make sure we ensured some results that really helped our conversation with ARB. So David Binder Research um, is the one who did the poll, um, and that was also something that was requested of us by the administration. They wanted to make sure it was a pollster that they could trust, essentially. And he was extremely professional to work with, and um, look forward to many more projects with him. Well, great. I think it's... Um definitely one not only helpful to have a credible pollster but it's just nice for not only the political side but for members to really understand what type of projects are being taken on and that they are really professional they are going to stand up under scrutiny and they will hopefully help them continue to farm yeah i think there's we get a lot of bad particularly on the farming side and farmers are never more grouchy than they are with water restrictions and drought and I think one of the takeaways or two of the takeaways that wanted to make sure our members and, and folks that support our dairy industry here in California know is that voters are overwhelmingly supportive of you. And that the, the numbers came in as a bit of a shock to me. They really care about maintaining strong California based industry and they are very leery of additional what we call leakage. Paul discussed this last week, but leakage is the idea where we push our GHGs out of California onto someone else. And because the nation's dairy consumption is up many hundred percent fold, um, they're going to get their dairy from somewhere. People know this. They're very attuned to grocery store shortages right now. And that really came through as kind of a shining um, point to this poll. But the other thing, and this is a little more ominous, and the industry needs to get together, put its thinking caps on, and figure out how we can work this issue out together, 
voters in California are extremely concerned, and this was a side effect of the poll, that manipulating an animal's digestive process could cause harm or impact to animal health. They are not going to tolerate that. Anything in the name of manipulating digestive process or animal health, they were automatically opposed to. Moreover, they assumed that emissions that needed to be manipulated were unnatural and were very, very sensitive to animal health and welfare. That rose to the top of the concerns, and that's something that I have no shame in pointing out to people that might be moving a little too fast on technology that's not FDA approved. As we look at our broader sustainability marketing objectives, it has to be clear where the marketing and green sustainable conversation takes place that we don't mix that with what will become cost production increases and regulatory compliance on 1383. Those two conversations need to be had immediately because this enteric piece is moving faster than a lot of producers know. And that's become very clear to me as I have essentially unzipped our fly and put this process out on the table, put this tactical approach out on the table. We have folks out there who are diligently trying to explore new ways to market our products. They are not checking in the ability of those products on the farm. And I think that the more farmers that sit up and ask questions about that, we can get ahead of it, the better. Well, thanks, Sonia. As always, we appreciate your time and appreciate all of your hard work. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? Well, I look forward to having this conversation again. Producers don't necessarily like to hear the bad news, but we rarely will ring the alarm like we are right now. We have to start understanding what regulation of enteric means to us versus putting it into this voluntary concept. If we give ARB the wrong idea about what we can achieve on the enteric phase, we're shooting ourselves at the foot at beating them back on regulating us, right? If we say, oh, we can achieve it voluntarily and maybe we can get paid for it, I don't think that sends a very clear signal to ARB that we should oppose them regulating it, right? If we can do it, then why wouldn't they regulate it? So these are things that um, I... I encourage conversation about. I want people to give a call. I want to really put our industry on together and find a collective way that we can avoid the cost of production increase that I see on producers and Western is going to fight like crazy to make sure that everybody has their own bucket of choices when it comes to sustainability. Well, thank you, Anya. And we will make sure to drop your contact information in the show notes. I know it's readily available on our website and you're always happy to answer producers' calls. Awesome. Have a great weekend, everyone. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. 
Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Uh, my name is Aubrey Betancourt. I am the Director of Sustainability, a position created in partnership with the California Cattle Council and Western United Dairies. And I'm here to welcome you today on behalf of California Cattle Council, Western United Dairies, and the California Cattlemen's Association uh, to a drought services seminar. This is probably going to be the first in a series of seminars provided in English and Spanish, with the purpose being to maximize the available resources from our state and federal and local partners for you our farmers, ranchers, producers, and rural communities throughout California. So today we're joined actually by some of the best in the business, people that I am privileged to say have been my colleagues over the years. Um, and I say it's true, they are the best in the business. They were focused on USDA's farm services uh, and conservation services. Um, uh, and we are joined by USDA senior leadership. They have decades of experience working to bring some of those national programs that sometimes don't always apply to California, but have figured out in masterful ways to help maximize the, the resources for Californians and the diversity that we have here from border to border, uh, our 400 commodities, our incredible diverse uh, ecosystems uh, and communities as well. So now I'd like to turn it over to NRCS Chief Conservationist, uh, Carlos Suarez and his team with the Natural Resource Conservation Service in California. Carlos, it's really hard for me not to say state con. Um, it's, uh, it's old habits die hard, but Carlos and crew, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Thanks, Aubrey, and, and thanks, everyone. I, I want to thank you, Aubrey, for setting this uh, very much needed uh, webinar uh, and uh, for all your um, dairy uh, producers out there and cattle producers in our beloved state. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Paul and his, uh, Paul Sousa and his leadership and collaboration, collaboration throughout the years um, and, and many and many conservation initiatives that we are, have worked together. And Melissa and the, the Cal, uh, California Cattle Council, uh, California Cattlemen Association and, and many others and all the ACT family. Um, I'm, I'm Carlos Suarez, I'm the, as uh, Aubrey said, uh, state conservationist and state director for NRCS here in California. And um, to, to re reunite again with Aubrey, who has been my colleague for the last, uh, was my colleague for almost four years and now working in, in this new capacity. Um, I wanna talk a, a little bit about what California NRCS does, and then I'm gonna turn it over to the people that really knows uh, about our programs, which is um, uh, Rayanne Duvet, who is my assistant state conservationist for programs. But um, just looking at the 50,000 uh, feet view, we have been uh, for eight, more than 86 years, uh, NRCS, uh, before that Soil Conservation Service, have been working hand in hand with, um, uh, with private farmers, ranchers, and forest users to protect the, uh, protect the natural resources in, in our great nation. Um, California is no exception and where we have been uh, working closely and uh, building what I call building drought resiliency. You know, we focus so, so much about drought and we all know that we are in right conditions and it has been an extension of the 2012-2013 the drought. Uh, but to, for us, rather than attack the issue, as my late mom used to say, uh, Carlitos, there's no problems, there's opportunities. This is an opportunity to build that resiliency, to provide conservation practices to our uh, customers, to our uh, ranchers, farmers, uh, forest users that are 
excellent stewards of the land to continue building that resiliency so that they can continue their sustainability of the natural resources as well as their operations. Um, in, the, in the state, we uh, continue to grow our knowledge and strategies, partnerships, and tools to span the range of options to improve um, this watershed resiliency and, and drought resiliency. Our focus for fiscal year 21, which uh, uh, is about in two months, we're uh, close to, to end on the federal level, it has been prioritizing conservation practices as follows. And, and those are building soil health by increasing water holding capacity using cover crops, mulching, no-till practices, crop residue management and other related practices. That is very important to sustain. We cannot uh, make water, unfortunately, but we can certainly, the, the, the precious water that we have, the, the moisture that we have, we can do everything we can to sustain, to keep it underground and keep that moisture uh, that becomes available for the crops. And also for uh, the animals and the livestock that we, that we produce in the state. Also, a second priority has been to improve the impacted range through increased grazing management. That has been very important. Also using improving uh, improvements such as crop fen uh, cross fencing and livestock water distribution, which is important as how we place our um, practices, play our water troughs, our water uh, facilities for, the, for cattle to take advantage of it. Also protecting uh, forest land has been very critical in the state. I was sharing with uh, Secretary Vilsack uh, on Tuesday, which I have an opportunity to brief him on the drought conditions in the, in the state, that we no longer have a fire season in the state. Fire season is pretty much year round, 12 years, uh, 12 months of the year. How NRCS have become more engaged and more active participant, uh, working with CAL FIRE, working with the Forest Service, working with the Resource Conservation District, and working with the private forest users to protect that, uh, that forest land, to build uh, resiliency and uh, protect and increase forest health. And last priority has been optimizing our water irrigation uh, through e efficient irrigation systems and better control management of water. That's where integrated water management comes into place and is critical. So these are the array of pri conservation priorities that we have set up for 21. And we'll continue to build on in, uh, in the following years as we continue to build drought resiliency. Now, how do we use all that and we address those priorities? That's where we uh, go to our conservation tools, uh, as I call it, uh, which are our farm bill program. And for that, I would like to have Ray Ann Dubay, our assistant state conservationist for programs, talk about those conservation programs that we have. With that, Ray, the floor is yours, ma'am. Great, so I'm just gonna do a check here. Can can you all hear me okay, see me? It's perfect, Ryan, yes. thank you. Okay, great, thanks. Okay, so as Carlos said, I'm gonna run through some of the programs that are available through NRCS. Uh, and we are the conservation side of USDA. So as Carlos just alluded to, we have a number of programs that really address that resiliency component and conservation on a farm, ranch, or a forested operation. So going from left to right there on your screen, um, we have environmental improvement programs, uh, and those are conservation technical assistance program, as well as our well-known environmental quality incentives program. 
We have a stewardship program, uh, which further increases the level of conservation on a property. Uh, it's conservation stewardship program. We also have a program that covers uh, watershed operations and it helps restore some watersheds and floodplains. And then we also have easements where we can work with uh, both private individuals and folks such as land trusts to help put land into easements. And then lastly, I will cover um, our partnership opportunities, which can encompass any one of those above program authorities. So Jolene, can you go to the next slide for me? And one more. Perfect. Okay, so I'm going to start with conservation technical assistance. This is not something that is talked about a lot, uh, but this is what uh, allows our planners to come out and work with a producer one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so all of our programs still have the connection to a planner that works directly with a client that has an interest in meeting a resource concern on their property. Uh, that NRCS staff person works with them on site-specific issues, developing practice designs, uh, suggesting alternatives, identifying uh, other issues on the property that may not have been identified by the producer that could use some assistance, and helps them navigate through the programs that are offered through NRCS. So with the NRCS planner, the client builds what's called a conservation plan, and that conservation plan is what we use um, within our systems to help a producer apply for funding. So next slide, please. So the first program that I'll go over is our EQIP program. It's Environmental Quality Incentives. And projects under this are ranked uh, competitively amongst each other. And once we run out of funding, we, we're done funding projects for a year. The, typically, they are one to five years in length, however, they can be up to a 10 year uh, contract. Uh, we use what are called conservation practices. Uh, many of them you heard Carlos talking about, uh, could be an irrigation system, a fence, a livestock watering facility. Um, and we use those practices to address the resource concerns identified on the property. Payment for those practices happens as soon as they're certified uh, by an NRCS staff member. And payments rate, payment rates are a flat rate and they're based on a regional cost list that's developed annually. Typically in California, we get about $80 million annually to spend through this program. Next slide. Okay, conservation stewardship program. This is uh, the next step in conservation. Uh, this is intended for folks who already have a certain level of stewardship on their property. So they're already may have gone through an EQIP program or they're just um, really advanced in their and progressive in the way that they manage their resources. Um, and they're also interested in continuing to increase their level of stewardship. Uh, the program is really well suited for people who uh, are have a demonstrated capability to keep uh, good management records um, and are very interested in achieving the next level of conservation. We use what are called enhancements in this program to meet or exceed resource concerns. So under EQIP, where we use practices, uh, enhancements take those practices to the next level of conservation. Uh, there are also annual payments associated with this program. They happen at the beginning of every fiscal year and the contracts are typically five years in length and there is an option to renew for an additional five years once those first five years are up. California receives about five to $12 million annually to uh, deliver this program. All right, next slide. 
this is a new program that we have here in California. It's a version of the EQIP program. It's called Conservation Incentive Contracts. And what this does is it really marries our EQIP program with our CSP program, the two that I just talked about. And it makes available both practices and enhancements inside one contract. Again, the projects are ranked and uh, funded competitively. Uh, the contract period is five years. The list of practices enhancements that are available for producers is about 300. So there's about 160 practices and about uh, just over 140 uh, conservation enhancements. So the list of available practices or enhancements that a producer could choose from is much longer under this program. Uh, payments for practices are completed as they're certified. Uh, enhancement payments follow the CSP format and are paid at the beginning of the fiscal year. Uh, program funds in California are not 80 million. That is a typo on my part, I apologize. Uh, this year, our first year with this program, it is a pilot here in California. We did get 22, just over $22 million uh, to deliver in the state. Uh, and that's a very large chunk of the money that was dedicated nationally towards this program. About half of the funding available nationally did come to California. And again, that should be $22 million there. So next slide, please. Uh, just briefly, our watershed program, uh, we can work with federal, state, local, and tribal governments as sponsors and protect and restore watersheds up to 250,000 in acres. Um, we have about 12 dozen or more, uh, excuse me, not 12 dozen, we have about 12 uh, projects that are happening in California right now that we're actively working on. Uh, next slide. Uh, easements. We have two easement programs. One is called ASEP. Uh, it's our wetland reserve program. Um, that one restores and protects and enhances wetlands. And we work with uh, private landowners and tribes to enter into easements. Uh, we get about $10 million annually through that program that goes to help pay for both the easements and the restoration that might be associated with those easements. Our agricultural land easement program uh, also helps to protect ag agricultural uses and the conservation value of those properties. Um, we get between around $10 million annually for that program also. Next slide. Uh, partnerships. So this is the one where uh, partners are eligible to apply for a what we call a regional conservation partnership program. And our partners can come to us and tell us that uh, with the contributions that they're willing to bring to the table, they would like to use the authorities that NRCS has under the programs that I've just discussed above and combine our efforts to address resource needs um, in the state. Uh, it does have a maximum award amount of $10 million per project. There are state level competitions, and then we also have critical conservation area competitions uh, that involve other state boundaries as well. So there can be some state overlap in that. We currently have more than 20 active partnership projects that are happening across the state, and they encompass all of the program authorities, uh, EQIP practices, CSP enhancements, and also um, easements. We have about $4 million that go into producer contracts through these partnership efforts, and uh, they are significantly moving a lot of uh, important issues for many of our partners. Next slide. 
So just to reiterate, uh, how do you get assistance from NRCS? Uh, we start with a planning process with all of our producers to identify their goals and help them review the resource concerns on their property. That's the planning phase. Uh, once we go through that, we can help them make an application for a program that is going to fit the resource needs uh, and their goals of their property the best. Uh, we have them go through a process where we work hand in hand with Farm Service Agency to help establish eligibility for programs. Uh, we will rank the projects and once the ranking is completed, we'll let them know if they were able to be funded and they can go ahead and start the project. All right, next slide. Uh, best way to get in touch with an NRCS office is by contacting your local office. Uh, local NRCS offices, uh, likely Jolene, who is running the slideshow here, can probably drop a NRCS office locator link into the chat. Um, but you can also use a farmers.gov account. Uh, if you are acting as an individual who is signed up for program support with a, a social security number, uh, this specific account can work for you. You can have access to your records, both through Farm Service Agency and the NRCS through farmers.gov uh, and make a lot of requests through that portal as well as sign a lot of documents with us. So we're highly encouraging folks to check that out if you're feeling so inclined. Next slide. Uh, lastly, I'll just say that project awards, uh, again, we do planning year round with our clients. They can come through the door at any time and start working on a conservation plan with us. Uh, application deadlines do vary by the program and the year. So we highly encourage you checking in with the local office to figure out what those program deadlines are. Uh, typical project awards occur between February and September annually. And I think that's the end of it, Jolene. Yeah, thank you. Great, thank you so much. And Rayanne, I can't thank you enough for bringing up the technical assistance aspect of the services provided by NRCS. Um, really want to make sure people understand that that's available. It's, it is about, again, that personal touch. The, I mean, the, the amazing thing about these three agencies is they are directly connected to you, the producer, on an individual level, and um, and they are there to help work out an individual plan that works best for the goal, works best for you, and 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 um, maximizes those resources and programs. So, thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate that. All right, we will open up the floor for you all uh, to ask questions of these agents. The experts. I know one, a couple of questions. I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of kick it off. Maybe this, this might help everybody. Um, uh, real quick, um, bouncing back to uh, some of the questions earlier regarding um, uh, ECP. I know wells going out is a, a common theme that I'm hearing more of. Uh, does, does ECP in addressing wells, I know that's something that's that's touchy because of the environmental impact um, that has to be done, but I'm pretty sure that would have to be done in any circumstance. Um, if it is replacing an existing well or dropping deeper in an existing well, is that something ECP would would uh, consider? Um, you know, on the um, wells, as, as you said, it is a really touchy subject for, for all. Um, and I think we would have the evaluation, historically we have not, um, done any irrigation wells. Actually, it doesn't really 
we stay away from irrigation wells just because of one, um, the environment, environmental impacts. And then two is that it's, um, it's something that um, the agency historically has not, has not, has not done. However, we can, we can look at it, um, but it would require national office consideration if we were to move, move forward with that. Um, it's, it would require um, a, a higher level approval to move forward on, on any wells. And um, I believe NRCS also um, has determined that environmentally it's not, um, it's not something that um, the agency can, can assist with. Carlos, do you, do you have anything to add on that? Yes, uh, Nabib, thanks. And, and I'll let Rayanne also uh, chime in. But yes, uh, we have not, uh, traditionally, it's not actually on our uh, standards to pay for wealth, wells for irrigation. Um, we have, uh, we, however, have done it for water, um, water structures, or not water structures, for uh, conservation water easements. facilities. Uh, yeah, say, for livestock, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's how what what we have done, but not for irrigation or building uh, wells for irrigation systems or so forth. Ray, anything uh, you would like to add to that? No, I don't have anything to add to that, Carlos. Um, anyhow, no, Carlos, everything you said was was accurate. Um, definitely, the best thing to always do. Uh, even if you have an issue with an irrigation well, I mean, still bring it up with the NRCS planning staff, right? Because we, we come to you under that, that conservation technical assistance funding uh, that just allows us to have a conversation with you. And, and sometimes I have found in my personal experience that that conversation may open doors and ideas and thoughts to other things that, you know, you, that might be able to help you in some of your decision making about, you know, do you need to drop a deeper well in that location? Does is another location maybe better? You know, that kind of a thing. So, just because we can't necessarily pay for it doesn't mean we may not have some technical expertise to offer about it. That's really helpful, and I I know that's a lesson that I've personally learned with each of your agencies is. Um, you know, for the programs to work for me, I have to work the program and that only works when we open up that, that conversation uh, and start exploring what are the options and what are the goals and what are the, what are the opportunities. So if I'm, I'm hearing this, uh, you know, correctly, obviously go in if you have a problem in this regard. Um, I'm thinking of a, you know, for instance, if a, a well actually providing water to dairy cattle on a dairy went out, um, I would assume I would, the first place I would run is if I would call up and say this is an emergency as a result of the drought, I'm, I have to supply my cat and you know, my cows with water. What do we got? Um, you know, and I, I, it, I'm hearing, okay, go to both agencies. Thank goodness, most, most often you guys, I think in California, we're all co-located. So uh, all in one office and, and hopefully work together to try to find a, a solution um, to, to that type of a situation. So, um, okay, that's great. That's perfect. Uh, out of curiosity, is there any penalty um, you know, let's say you file an application for uh, equip EIC and you're going through the process and you find out that partway through, maybe this isn't the right program for that or the solution is found somewhere else. Um, is there any penalty for withdrawing an application uh, with any of your agencies? 
no, uh, the answer is no, um, uh, Aubrey, and, and that's a very good question. Um, you know, the program has to fit, fit the, the, the needs of that farmer, the, that rancher uh, uh, for land user. So if uh, you apply, whether it's CIC or any of our programs, uh, but the, the, the question was specifically for CIC, but this also applies to EQIP. So at any given point, if you're going through the ranking process, um, you decide uh, before you're signing off to, to obligate the contract that you need to withdraw, would you would like to withdraw? Uh, that, that's, that's totally fine. It's a decision that we would respect and there's no um, penalty to that. The, the, the challenge is when you sign a contract, when it becomes, you know, we said, yeah, we, you have been approved for funding, you come in and you sign a contract. Depending on the situation, if you need to withdraw, we, of course, we, don't, we, we uh, don't want you to withdraw, but if you have a situation that is a, like a financial hardship or the cost of the, the practice has increased or it's, um, your situation has changed, we do have, um, I do have the authority to waive any penalties on, on that if that is the case. Uh, that's, I, we want that to be kind of the last uh, uh, resort, but um, we're hoping that when you go in that, that everything is set up for you to, to install that practice. But if for something happened while you sign that contract, we have some, some options. But just before signing the contract, if you submit the application and you decide to withdraw, uh, that's fine. That there's no penalty on that. Yeah, same is true for FSA. Uh, majority of the programs do allow you to withdraw prior to approval. That's great. Thank you so much. I think that's important for producers to understand. Thank you again for your time, and I greatly appreciate everyone participating. Absolutely, thanks so much to USDA and all of uh, your team and your teams on the ground. Continued commitment to California. Um, thank you so much for your continued service. And I wish you all the best. Buckle up. We can do this. Californians are resilient by nature. And thank you all. We'll see you soon. Take care. Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above-ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above-ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off-site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. A huge thank you to Tiffany and Anya for joining us for today's episode, as well as our webinar participants, Aubrey um, Betancourt, who coordinated that, thank, so thankful to her, and to the USDA Senior Leadership from Natural Resource Conservation Services for their part. Um, that we aired this week. And just remember, if you'd like to hear more about anything, to reach out to us with questions, comments, and content requests. And I could be reached at mlima at wudairies.com. Darby, you are? I am D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. And remember, with that, to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. Have a great week, everyone. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the West United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous business sponsors. 
Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com.